Good morning. Let's begin with prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study today. We ask that you would bless us as we work together to spread the good news about you with our passion and our heart being to, to lighten the world with the truth about your character so that we can see you very soon here in the near future. We pray for those members that are unable to be with us today, that you will watch over them and bless them as they are worshiping wherever they are, that they might be able to take the light of your, your truth and love to, to the community where they're, they're located, and the members that are struggling with illnesses. We pray that you will be with them to restore them to health and bring them back to us. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We are doing lesson number five in our quarterly redemption in Romans, and the lesson title this week is Justification in the Law. But before we actually go into this week's lesson, there's a couple of things I really wanted to follow up from, from last week's lesson. And I wanted to follow up on this idea that justification by faith is something that gets declared in this declaration, this declaration aspect of, uh, of things. So a couple of questions about that. When God de- does God declare things to be that are actually not so? Is God's declaration what makes it so? Last week somebody mentioned the idea when God speaks it exists. Maybe it's God's declaration that causes the justification. Um, Somebody threw that out last week as a suggestion. I got to thinking about that. If that were true, it's God's declaration that makes it so, as speaking things into existence, then why doesn't he just declare everyone righteous? Wouldn't he? I mean, if, if the idea is that it's God's declaration that makes it be that way, wouldn't he declare everyone righteous because he wants all to be saved? It says in, in 1 Timothy uh, chapter uh, 4. Yeah, she says, does declaration change hearts? Exactly. These are the questions. Um, stated another way, can a person be legally right with God while their heart is still unchanged toward him? You think that, think that through, because that's this concept that gets put out there with this, this legal, legal substitution, declarations, uh, justification. Uh, how, how do we understand then the declarative aspects of justification? When Jesus was on earth, he declared that the leaders of, of Israel that he was dealing with, he declared them that they, they were of their father, the devil. He made that declaration, didn't he? You are of your father, the devil. Was it so when he made that declaration? What was, was what he was declaring already true? Or was Jesus declaring something that was not so? He was saying it, but it wasn't true. No, it was that way. What caused them to be of their father the devil? Was it Jesus' declaration that caused them to be of their father the devil? Well, that's what we're asking when it comes to the question of justification. If it's God's declaration that makes it so, then why doesn't he just declare everyone? So, so is there a heart change that happens before God declares someone righteous? Yeah, I guess the question we're, we're discussing is, does God's declaration of righteousness, is, is that something that actually causes the righteousness? Because what the lesson was talking about last week is when God, um, when, when justification by faith is God's declaration that we're righteous, or seeing us righteous in his eyes, if you remember. These are the definitions given. And I'm suggesting uh, from Romans chapter 4, it says when Abraham trusted God or had faith in God, then he was declared or recognized to be righteous. And so I agree completely with, we don't bring ourselves to a changed heart. There's no way. The Holy Spirit works on us, brings us to conviction, brings us to repentance. Repentance is a gift of God. Uh, But until there's that heart repentance, are we seen as righteous? Are we seen as righteous while we're still enmity to God, our natural heart? It's when we have been brought and we've made that choice. So the Holy Spirit convicts the heart, enlightens the mind, brings us to the point, but aren't we left free to make the choice whether we will surrender or not surrender? And then when we surrender and open the heart in trust, then we're seen or recognized as righteous. So all the work to bring us to that point, all the work after that point to heal and restore us, all that regenerating process is the work of the Holy Spirit. I want to move on here. Um, a couple more questions about this. When, when at the end of time, how about this one? When the, when the Lord declares those that are filthy shall be filthy still, and those that are righteous, let them be righteous still. Does his declaration of that situation cause it to be that way? It's descriptive. There are many people who believe that it is not possible to actually experience a change of heart in this world toward God. That therefore it is necessary if we're going to be right with God for God to make a declaration that we're right because it's not possible for a sinner's heart to be changed. There are some people he says believe that. 
what do you believe? Do you believe it's possible through God's grace, not through our work, but through God's grace for a sinner's heart to be changed? I mean, that's the whole gospel message, isn't it? To, to be reborn, to be recreated in the inner man. So yes, those who hold that view, I think there are some that hold that view. It's all God's biddings are enablings. That's a, a quotation from one of the founders of our church, Ellen White. And I think there's a lot of truth in that. When God doesn't bid us to do something, he doesn't enable us to or provide us the means or resources to do. I think that's a great quote. There's another aspect here, though. The penal, the penal model, is it not true that what's emphasized in that model for our justification is that Jesus died to pay our legal penalty? Is that not, would I be misstating it if I said that? And is it not true that um, our model suggests that focusing on the penalty paid misdirects our attention from God's true plan? In other words, it suggests mere blood payment was not, was not sufficient for, to justify us. And with that in mind, I want you to think this, think this through. Look at your Bibles with me. Romans 4.25, because I want you to see this. Paul says here, Christ was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Does that make a difference? He was delivered over to death for our sins, but was raised to life for our justification. Does that strike anybody at all? It's different? Being raised to life for justification? You see, there's something insufficient when we say what was necessary for our justification was to pay a penalty. And, And our model suggests that he was delivered over to death to destroy that infection of selfishness, that sinfulness, that carnal nature that we are inherited from Adam. So yes, he was delivered over for our sin, but he was raised to life to set us right with God. He was raised to life to give us a new heart and right spirit. He was raised to life to put mankind back, to keep mankind in the grave and death, uh, to, to punish and, and destroy sin, doesn't put us right with God. What puts us right with God is a new creation, a new heart, a right spirit, to be regenerated, to be reborn. This is what puts us right. So it was, his, it was resurrection after destroying carnal nature at the cross, after, after destroying sin in his humanity, he became sin who, no, who knew no sin. Then he was raised to life to set us right with God. Many people were crucified. Only Christ was raised from, from the dead that way. So some language is easier to understand than others. And I, I didn't get to read this to you last week, but I want to do it because I want us to, to, to get practiced at thinking through some of the, some of the darker speech language. And darker speech doesn't mean bad speech. God spoke in parables and riddles and dreams and, and all types of things. So it's not a criticism. But when we have metaphors and symbols in scripture, we should be able to deconstruct those and understand what they mean. And so here is uh, something from one of the founders of our church, Faith and Works. And I want you to hear what it says. And let's deconstruct the meaning. It says, as the penitent sinner, contrite before God, discerns Christ's atonement in his behalf and accepts this atonement as his only hope in this life and the future life, his sins are pardoned. This is justification by faith. Every believing soul is to conform his will entirely to God's will and keep in a state of repentance and contrition, exercising faith in the atoning merits of the Redeemer and advancing from strength to strength, from glory to glory. Pardon and justification are one and the same thing. Through faith, the believer passes from the position of a rebel, a child of sin and Satan, to the position of loyal subject of Christ. Not because of any inherent goodness, but because Christ receives him as his child by adoption. The sinner receives the forgiveness of his sins because these sins are borne by his substitute and surety. The Lord speaks to his heavenly father, saying, This is my child. I reprieve him from the condemnation of death, giving him my life insurance policy, eternal life, because I have taken his place and have suffered for his sins. He is even my beloved son. Thus man, pardoned and clothed with the beautiful garments of Christ's righteousness, stands faultless before God. Justification is the opposite of condemnation. God's boundless mercy is exercised towards those who are wholly undeserving. He forgives transgressions and sins for the sake of Jesus, who has become the propitiation for our sins. Through faith in Christ, the guilty transgressor is brought into favor with God and into the strong hope of life eternal. So, what do you all think about that passage? Do you find that very clear? It's not wrong. There's nothing wrong about what I read there. But does it make it absolutely clear in your mind? Or is it, like, hard to understand? Well, yeah, I see some heads nodding. Any comments, thoughts, questions? What questions would you ask about it? Did you hear somebody say, wait a minute, hold on, what what does that mean? No questions? All right, I'll ask some questions then. It says here, pardon and justification are one and the same thing. 
It sounds very forensic, doesn't it? What does it mean to have our sins pardoned or forgiven? Here is another place from the same author. But forgiveness has a broader meaning than many suppose. What do we suppose forgiveness means? Many times. When we think of whether our, our salvation, when we think of, 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 uh, of eternal life, we think of our sins and presenting ourselves before God, and we think of being forgiven for our sins. What do we traditionally suppose it means? That God doesn't hold it against us, what we've done. Isn't that traditionally what it seems to suppose? He doesn't hold it against us. We're pardoned. But forgiveness has a broader meaning than many suppose. When God gives the promise that he will abundantly pardon, he adds... As if the meaning of that promise exceeds all that we could comprehend. My thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are my ways your ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, are my ways higher than yours, and my thoughts higher than yours. God's forgiveness is not merely a judicial act by which he sets us free from condemnation. Did you hear that? God's forgiveness is not merely a judicial act to set us free. It is not only forgiveness for sin, but reclaiming from sin. It is the outflow of redeeming love that transforms the heart. And David had the true conception of forgiveness when he prayed, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. So when we understand that forgiveness or pardon is a reclaiming from sin and a regenerating of a new heart in the person, then do we understand this quote, pardon and justification are one and the same thing. Does that then make sense? How about justification is the opposite of condemnation? Well, what is it that causes our condemnation? Why are we condemned? Traditionally, God is the judge. He looks at us. We're outside of harmony with his law. We're in legal trouble and legal condemnation comes. That's what traditional condemnation looks like. Is that what's meant in this passage? Justification is the opposite of condemnation. Well, here's what, another, here's what it says in Matthew, Jesus speaking. Make a tree good and its fruit will be good. Make a tree bad and its fruit will be get bad. For a tree is recognized by its fruits. You brood of vipers, how can you which are evil say anything good? For out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good man brings forth good out of the good stored up in him. And the evil man brings forth evil out of the evil stored up in him. But I tell you that men will give an account on the day of judgment for every careless word you have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted and by your words you will be condemned. What does that mean? Where does condemnation come? Where does it arise? From within. within. Russell's awake. Thank you, Russell. (laughs) (laughs) But but this is what this is what it means. It says justification is the opposite of condemnation. If condemnation comes from your own condition, make a tree good, it's fruit good, make a tree bad, from your own words you will be condemned. Condemnation coming from the heart, the character. So the unconverted man, we are dead in trespass and sin. The unregenerate man, the person that's unreborn, their own condition is self-condemning. So justification is the opposite of condemnation because justification is taking that which is out of harmony, that which is, which is out of line with God, out of unity with God, and restoring it, setting it right with God again. We're actually reborn, regenerated, recreated. What does it mean that God forgives for Jesus' sake? How did you like that? God, remember we read that. God forgives for Jesus' sake. This leads, these types of language sometimes can lead to ideas that uh, comes from, from the dark ages. Jesus, Mary, and the saints plead to the Father to get him to be forgiving. Please, Father, my blood, my blood. And so for the sake of the Son, and nothing can plead like the mother, so we have the mother pleading too, of course. Mary pleading for our sins as well, because nothing can persuade like a woman, right? Okay? I mean, this is, this is the argument put forth. Talk to your Catholic friends. I'm, I, they're genuine good people. I'm not criticizing. Um, but this is, this is what, what, what is put forth. Because God needs persuasion in the mind of many. Does he? Is that what it means for Jesus' sake? Or is Jesus, as it says in Romans chapter 3, 25, when some language, uh, uses, um, uh, Christ as the mercy seat, uh, uh, I think, um, Luther translated it that way. The word hilasterion we talked about last week. That Christ is the way and means. Christ was God's method, vehicle, means of restoration. It was through Christ that God could achieve his purposes of restoring mankind back to himself. God could not accomplish what he was trying to accomplish uh, except through Christ. So it's, it's for Christ's sake or for Christ's accomplishment or Christ has done that he's able 
to, to achieve his reconciliation to us. Uh, excuse me, our reconciliation to him. It says in 2 Corinthians 5, 9, God was in the Son, reconciling the world to himself. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave. Romans 8, 31, if God is for us, who can be against us? You won't find in Scripture anything about the Son needing to work on the Father to persuade the Father to be on our side. It's not there. So for his sake, we have to understand those words to mean something other than trying to garner forgiveness out of the Father. That's not what it's meaning. It's meaning something else. How about the idea of Jesus taking away our sins or taking his sins upon him? Upon him? Our sins are taken by our substitute and surety, it's said. What does that mean? Well, there's a reference in Scripture, Isaiah 53. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Notice, different translations translate that differently. Griefs, sometimes it's sorrows and burdens and things. But surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Notice what we think about that, though. Next words of the prophet Isaiah. Yet we ourselves esteemed or considered him stricken and smitten by God, afflicted. So he's going to carry our griefs, our sorrows, our burdens. We're going to consider that God is punishing him. Has mankind considered that? Have we esteemed or thought God was, was doing this to him? That's what the prophet said would happen. Well, here's Matthew interpreting Isaiah for us. Why has it happened that we've interpreted it this way? Well, we have a controversy going on. We mentioned it last week between um, forces of evil and forces of good, principalities and powers in dark places. For the prophet Isaiah, God looked down the quarters of time, prophesied when Messiah would come to achieve all that was necessary for our salvation. And then he prophesied that a counterattack would happen from the little horn power in Daniel or the man of sin in Thessalonians that Paul talks about would counterattack against. We're told that this war is over ideas. We war over everything that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And so a counterattack occurred after Christ accomplished its mission in which everything Christ accomplished for us was twisted in some manner and misrepresented such that we developed an appeasement-based system through the Dark Ages. And then Reformation would come be 2,300 years before God's sanctuary could be cleansed from all this distortion and ugliness that was taught about him. We're having some trouble with our normal mic that records the audience, so I'm kind of repeating some things. He said, the deception has to be very close to the real. If it's, if it's obvious, I mean, if Satan were to, to pop up with a pitchfork and cloven hooves and a tail and horns and said, I'm the devil, come follow me, and we're all going to go and live in hell together, uh, not many people are going for that. The deception has to be very close to the, to the real, to the genuine. That's exactly right. It has to be subtle. And that's what it says in Genesis 3, that the serpent was more cunning or more subtle. So this, these were very subtle distortions from truth. That's right. It's not usually 180 degrees opposite. It's very subtle. And this is what happened. He says, then the paradigm in which you view God, this is how you interpret then scripture and what Christ accomplished for us. And so here's what Matthew interprets for us of this Isaiah 53 text. This is in Matthew 8, chapter 16 and 17. And you'll find if you have your Bible referenced and footnoted, it will give you the reference back to Isaiah 53, 4. This is what he's referring to. And it says in verse 16, And when evening had come, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with a word, and healed all who were ill, in order that what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, He himself took our infirmities and carried away our diseases. So what is it that he was doing? What does the Apostle Matthew say is the fulfillment of this thing? A legal penalty being applied to Christ or him doing something else? How about this? Isaiah 53, 5. Next verse. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastising for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. This is what First Peter says about that passage and how the Apostle Peter interprets it. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. What is the purpose of Christ's death here? And this, this, this is often used as a quotation or evidence of a legal penalty being paid. But what does the, the apostle say? He said that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. His death was for our changing from an enmity to God to a harmony with God. That's what he was trying to accomplish. This is what Peter is telling us. It was by Christ's accomplishment at the cross that we can experience a new heart or right spirit and live in a new way. 
Interestingly, you notice in the text how it's translated in all your English Bibles. It's translated this way. Verse 24 has a word in it called sins. He himself bore our sins in his body so that we might die to sin. So it's got sins and sin in the same verse. The Greek is the same word. The Greek word is hemartia, something like that. And it's, uh, and it can be translated sins or sin. The translators decided in all of our English Bibles that he bore our sins in his body so that we might die to sin. Does it make a difference if you just make them both singular? He bore our sin in his body. You see, I think when you have a penal model, you have to be sure that every behavioral act of sin, every transgression, remember last week we read in the lesson that sin is basically equated with being a criminal or crime. It, it used the words criminal. And, and it looks at it this way, and it's very behavioral. But Christ took us deeper than that. He said, you say if you commit adultery, bad act, you commit sin. I say if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery. You say if you commit murder, uh, if you, if you, you commit sin. I say if you hate your brother in your heart. And so he's taking us to a deeper level that behaviors are, are manifestations of hearts that are no longer operating in harmony with his design of love for life. And so... I think that, here's the paraphrase that I wrote for that, uh, 1 Peter 2.24. He took upon himself our sinfulness, our terminal condition, in his own person upon the cross, so that, he could be, so that we could be freed from sin and live the right way, loving God and others more than ourselves. You have been healed by the remedy his painful, painful ordeal procured. All right, that was what I wanted to run over from last week. <laughs> Let's go to Sabbath lesson. Sabbath lesson, paragraph four, second paragraph. It says, in Romans four, Paul reveals three major stages in the plan of salvation. The promise of divine blessing, the promise of grace, the human response to the promise, the response of faith, and finally, the divine pronouncement of righteousness credited to those who believe. Justification. That's how it worked with Abraham, and that's how it works with us. Do you agree with stage one, God's promise to provide all that is needed to save us? We agree. Yeah. Do you agree with stage two, that we respond to God's initiative by trusting him? And do you agree with stage three, that when we trust him, there is a pronouncement or some legal credit? Why would he stop short? Why, if you trust God and you turn your heart over to him, you say, God... As David spoke, as we read a moment ago, Ellen White quoting David, creating me a clean heart, O God. I trust my entire life to you. I put my life in your hands. I open it. Pour your spirit out, Romans 5, 5. He pours his love, his, his spirit into our heart. Why would he stop short of transformation? Why? Would God stop short? If you are dying of a terminal condition and you go to a physician, do you want the physician to stop short of complete healing? Do you want him only to do something in the medical records and, and write down, I now recognize this patient as well? Or do you want him to actually do something that gets you well? Sunday's lesson, second paragraph. According to this Old Testament narrative, Abraham was accounted righteous because he believed God. Therefore, the Old Testament itself teaches righteousness by faith. Hence, any implication that faith makes void renders useless, invalidates the law is false. Salvation by faith is very much part of the Old Testament. Grace is taught all the way through it. What, for instance, was the entire sanctuary ritual, if not a representation of how sinners are saved, not by their own works, but by the death of a substitute in their stead? And their emphasis here is how the law is established and how um, God's plan of salvation and Christ's death in no way uh, did away with the law. It also uses this word... Um, Accounted. Do we agree that faith does not do away with the law? Do you ever feel like sometimes they, they, they work really hard to make that point? Yeah, I think, I think they work too hard because I think there's a, a way they see the law. Let's use the analogy given um, by the penal model of someone in a courtroom. What if a person got a speeding ticket and was found guilty in a court of law? Find the appropriate amount. But then an innocent substitute, Bill Gates steps up and not only pays the fine, but puts down $50 billion for all future speeding tickets. Our sins, past, present, and future, have been fully paid at the cross. Isn't that what is taught? Yes. So $50 billion down for all future speeding tickets. 
while uh, each speeding ticket thereafter is $100 each and is paid from the $50 billion on account. So the law is still in effect. Does the law have any real effect in the person's life? When all future penalties are already paid, what effect does that have on the person? Well, let's use a different analogy. What happens if a person has smoked their whole life and is now dying of lung cancer from cigarette smoking and violating the laws of health? What if there is now a regenerating treatment that will heal all the damage and restore perfect person back to perfect health, perfect lungs? And what if that person, after being restored back to health, went out and started smoking again? Is, is there a difference between having a $50 billion on account and being actually restored in, into the laws upon which life is, is designed to operate? I, actually, I kind of like that model very much. Our tuition is completely paid. We're students of Christ. We're enrolled now. We're considered. We got our ID card. We got our little golden card. You know, okay. <laughs> right. We're students, uh, but then we skip class and never go to class. We cut out. We uh, we uh, you know we go down to the we go down go down and play video games all day instead of going to class. Not just for Southern. They've also paid your tuition to Loma Linda. We've got four years of med school paid. And the student uh, cuts classes, doesn't go. So has Christ provided everything for every one of us to go to heaven? Has he provided it all? It's all there waiting for us. So it's all done. He's done everything we need. But how about we cut class? We don't go. We don't participate. We don't engage. We don't accept. We don't trust. Will we, will we still get there? Actually, I, if I be lifted up, will draw all unto me. The men, the word, the word men, the word men is supplied. He's, he's drawing all the whole universe. What it says in Colossians, uh, all things in heaven and in earth are reconciled to Christ at the cross. So yes, there's a drawing, but does that mean universalism that all will be saved? It says in Timothy that he wants all men to come to salvation, yet all won't. Not because of a deficiency in God, not because of a deficiency in Christ, not because of a deficiency in the Holy Spirit, not because of a deficiency in the angelic hosts that are working for our behalf. There is no deficiency from heaven. But because of free will, we are still free to reject all that. And some will. And some will. Does that make sense? So in our model of the, uh, using the health laws, the reason I like the health laws is because do we see that a restoring a person back to health uh, in, is actually an establishing of the law? The law is established this way because life is actually based operate upon it. And any future deviations will result in the same thing past deviations resulted in. I guess I'll jump ahead to Tuesday's lesson and the second paragraph. And It's important to remember, as we said in the beginning, to whom Paul is writing. The Jewish believers were immersed in Old Testament law, blah, blah, blah. And I just want to make the point from that section of it that why there's so much legalistic sounding language in, uh, in our Bibles, particularly in Romans, is one, we talked last week about how um, much of the words we get are Latin-based and our legal, law, uh, our legal language is Latin. But also Paul was writing, as the lesson makes very clear, to a group of legalistically minded individuals who were... Who were legalists, and he was trying to break them out of legalism, so he had to speak a language that would connect with them and try to lead them out of it. So he used lots of legal language so they could recognize what he was trying to say and lead them out of it. I want to make that point. And then last paragraph in Tuesday's lesson says, if Paul here were referring to the moral law exclusively, which existed in principle even before Sinai, the point remains the same. Perhaps even more so, seeking to receive God's promises through the law, he said, makes faith void, even useless. Those are strong words, but his point is that faith saves when the law condemns. He's trying to teach about the futility of seeking salvation by the very thing that leads to condemnation, because we all, Jews and Gentiles, have violated the law, and hence we all need the same thing as Abraham did, the saving righteousness of Jesus credited to us by faith. Any questions about that? Did that sound right as you read it? Any, any, any flags, any big question marks go up in your mind? Credited? Okay, good. And then there was one, how about this? But his point is that faith saves and the law condemns. Well, the law does condemn, but what about faith saving? Hmm. Listen to this. This is out of Review and Herald, January 5, 1886. And my question to you is, somebody can have faith in a false Messiah? Can they? Can they have faith in a lie? Will their faith in that lie save them? No. When we speak of unbelief, we do not mean that a person believes nothing. The mind must rest upon something, and when it does not grasp truth, it lays hold of error. 
All men in one sense believe, and the effect produced upon the heart and the character is according to the things believed. Oh, we could have time to go into some of the neurobiology. This is absolutely true. What you believe changes neural circuits. It alters uh, gene expression even. Which genes are turned on? Which genes are turned off? Altered by what you believe. It's cool stuff. We are changed by what we believe. Eve believed the words of Satan, and the belief of that falsehood in regard to God's character changed the condition and character of both herself and husband. They were changed from the good, from good and obedient children into transgressors, and it was only by repentance towards God and faith in the promised Messiah they could hope ever to regain the lost image of God. I want to point that out. You notice it was only by faith in the promised Messiah and repentance towards God they could hope to gain, regain the lost image of God. It's a restoration they were hoping for, a recreation, of being put back right again. Paul had faith before his conversion. This is what I was getting to. But it was not a correct faith. His self-righteousness strengthened his faith that he was doing God's service and rejecting Christ, and he enjoyed a restful satisfaction. False faith, as well as true faith, will give peacefulness for a time. Paul verily thought that he was doing God's service when he was persecuting the followers of Christ and putting them to death. He was sincere in his belief, but sincerity will not make error truth, nor truth error. Does that make sense to everyone? We aren't saved by faith. We're saved by God's grace when we trust him or when we have faith in him. When we're brought back to trust or faith, it's God's work, God's action, God's enabling, God's doing that saves, heals, and restores. It's God's medicine, if you want to look at it that way, that heals us when we trust him enough to take it. So the end of the Sabbath school last week, the question was raised regarding whether someone has to see justification as we're expressing it or not to be saved. And we answered last week that no. In fact, Paul in Romans chapter 2 says you don't even have to even hear the law. You don't have to even know about Torah. You don't have to know any of these things. If by nature you do the things contained in the law, the law is written on your heart and your conscience bears witness that you're one of God's children. So you don't even have to have a missionary come to you and tell you about Christ. According to Paul, to be saved, then why do we send missionaries? Because it's so much easier to be saved when you hear the truth and the gospel. But the Holy Spirit will work on all hearts and all minds and all places at all times to bring people a knowledge of God with the light that they have. And if in nature, it says in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, that God's divine nature is seen in what he has made so that men are without excuse, if we see the truth of God's character, his principles, his methods, in nature that he's created, the Holy Spirit enlightens our mind to that, convicts us, we respond and we live that selfless life of love, the law has been put on the heart, new covenant, Romans 8, 10, I'll write my law in your hearts and minds. So we don't have to see all this the same way, but we have to have a changed heart. We have to be renewed to love others more than self, don't we? Yeah. So then, I received this email this week, in the aftermath of class last week, which goes to the question. It says, the revelation of God's character presented in Sabbath schools had a huge impact on my life. I feel that in addition, and in unison with the message of God revealed through Christ, a greater emphasis on God revealed through us, and how his character looks in us, would be a powerful part of Sabbath school. We talk about the purpose of Christ's life and death, the remedy for sin, but not enough of how we are to take the remedy and what kind of life we should be living. I know that by merely observing the character of God, it manifests itself in us, but more emphasis on its appearance in our lives and the role the Sabbath school as a group and as individuals play in, the, in living lives like Christ is, I think, necessary to encourage us in that direction. We need to re- a reminder of how to take the remedy and what side effects to expect. So what, what do you all think? How do we take the remedy? How do we partake? Jesus used metaphor, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part with me. Was in metaphorical language, was he talking about partaking the remedy. Now, does that mean a little wafer and some grape juice? Is that what it means? That's a reminder, yes. So how do we partake? Let's get real. How do we partake so that we actually experience this for real? And she's saying that when you actually eat the little symbols, molecularly, nutritional substances become part of the physical body. We become absorbed into who we are, and building blocks of our proteins and molecules are made out of the food we eat. And we then, spiritually, when we partake of whatever we partake of, whether it's spiritually healthy or junk food, spiritual junk food, that our neural circuits, our minds, our characters will be assimilated or changed in that process. So it's we choose what it is we ingest. Have you ever anybody ever heard 
this phrase, you know, somebody's just, I just devoured a really good book or things like that. Yeah. Jesus said, I, I, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword to separate parents from kids, brothers from sisters, families will be divided. What is the sword that he brings? The sword of truth. And why does the sword of truth cause division? She says, truth isn't comfortable when you're holding to a lie and it causes disruption. Okay, so I like this, abiding, and there's metaphors for that. The, I'm the branch, I mean, actually, I'm the vine, you're the branches, abiding together, partaking, yes. Let's see if we can't kind of, I, I don't want to say codify, <laughs> it's too, too rigid. But let's see if we can't outline some, some methods or principles that actually result in healing. Um, Jesus said, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So, free, what does truth set us free from? lies. So we have to understand our, our position, where we're coming from. We're coming from a position, it says in Isaiah, darkness covers the earth, gross darkness the people. Darkness about what, do you think? Yeah, it says in Second uh, Corinthians 10, 3-5, that we destroy or demolish all those things that set itself up against the knowledge of God. John 17, 3, life eternal is knowing God. Romans chapter 1, that when they exchange the truth of God for a lie, their minds became darkened and depraved and futile. So it all goes back to the truth about God. So we will know the truth. So somewhere in this process, one of the things that's very healthy is to, inside your own mind, determine this as a, as a mindset or heart attitude. I want to be a lover of what's true. Now, I know I'm not finite. I know I don't know it all. I know there's errors in my thinking, but that's okay. I want to grow in truth. I want to assimilate truth as soon as my mind can handle it. I want to advance in truth. I want to be moving forward in truth. I want the unfolding truth to be part of who I am. I want to embrace it. I don't want to hide from it, run from it, or deny it. So developing an attitude of being a lover of truth. And if you look in Thessalonians, it talks about the wicked who are destroyed in the end. They perish because, there's a reason given. Why do they perish? They perish because they did not love the truth and thus be saved. See, they're not lovers of truth. So I would encourage, the first thing to say is, okay, I want a hard attitude that loves truth. And we love truth and want to grow in truth. We never arrive at the truth. Because when we arrive at the truth, then we begin to building our defensive walls to defend our truth from attack from other new ideas. And then we develop denominationalism. This what's happened. We've arrived at the truth. Let's build up our walls. Let's set down our roots. Let's lock ourselves in and prepare for the onslaught that's going to try to attack our beliefs. Rather than being open to the unfolding of truth. God is infinite. We're finite. How big is the gap? So will there ever come a time we know it all? We never want to arrive. We're always advancing, growing in truth. So with that hard attitude, that would be, the, I think, one of the first things to have. If you don't have an attitude that's loved, a lover of truth, then I don't know how there can be any growth. Now that truth then has multi-levels. Will the truth that God brings us convict us of our own sick condition? Is that part of the truth? That's why the law was given. The law was given so that sin might abound, so that we might see how sick we are. That's part of the truth. We are diagnosed as terminal, dead in trespass and sin. That's where we are. We're dead in trespass and sin. Is that all the truth, though? But that's a starting point. And what's the, if you ever deal with any people with addictions, the first step in helping an addict is step one. We admit that we are powerless and our lives have become unmanageable. We are powerless over our addiction, whatever it might be, in our lives. I mean, we have to first admit our sickness. This is what Christ meant when he said, those who are not sick don't need a physician. Those who think all is well, I can't help. So truth, convicting us, diagnosing us of our condition. So we're, we're there. We're all, we've all figured out that we're sick in heart and mind, right? And, and, and we figured out then the next truth. You're sick in heart and mind and you can't fix it yourself. Now, a lot of people spend their lives trying to fix it themselves, don't they? Haven't you seen that? Yeah. People spend their all kinds of systems. They're, they're, in fact, I would suggest most of the systems of the world, the false gospels of the world, are systems that have in some aspect of it a workspace, something I can do to fix myself. Isn't that true? We can bring an offering. I can bring an offering of, of my crops of my field, Cain. To earn my way. I raised those crops. I tilled that field. I'm bringing my offering to God to pay my way. We can bring an offering. We can, we can sacrifice our firstborn. Uh, Micah chapter 6. 
What, what shall I come with the, before the Lord? Shall I come with, with, with uh, burnt offerings? Shall I come with rivers of oil? Shall I offer the, my firstborn for the sins of my, my body? What does Micah 6.8 say? He has shown you, O man, what is good, that you should love mercy, act justly, and walk humbly before your God. That's what he wants. He wants a change of heart. We can't do that. Our hearts are at enmity. So the truth convicts us of our sixth state, and then we need the truth about God to take away our fear of him. Because what is it? As soon as Adam and Eve sinned, they ran and hid because they were afraid, because they were naked. And God says, where are you? And then after they, they, they find each other, um, why did you hide? I was afraid because I was naked. Who told you you were naked? Now, how many people are, and this is Adam and Eve together talking to God. Who told you you were naked? Now, what are the options here? <laughs> A lot of people around uh, telling them this. So what's the implication? You didn't hear me say it, Adam. I'm not pointing out any defects. I'm not criticizing you. That's your own guilty conscience. You're the one that's running. You're the one feeling insecure. You're the one who's not peace at yourself. You're the one who has believed a lie about me, and you think that I look at you like you look at you. I don't look at you like you look at you. You're the apple of my eye. And we have to get over this idea that when God looks at us, he can't stand what he sees. And because we think that, we've created theological constructs that the Father can't look at sinful mankind, so Christ stands between us and the Father to hide us from his view. Or puts his robe over us, because if the Father should get one glimpse of our nasty sinfulness, he would have to toast us with heavenly lightning. And why did he provide those garments? For, for whose comfort? For, yes, did God need that because he was like, oh man, I can't stand to see your nakedness. It's making me uncomfortable. Or were they uncomfortable? And it was to make them comfortable. We don't know that a lamb was slain. All we know is that he gave them garments. But we don't know. He spoke an animal into existence. He could have spoke the fur into existence. It doesn't say he slew a lamb. I, I tend to think he didn't kill a lamb there. And the reason I think he didn't kill a lamb is because the first recorded lamb slaying that we have in Scripture, who did it? What slayed Christ at the cross? It's a metaphor. It's a metaphor. What is it that brought death? God killing is the source of death, which is the penal model. Yes, God has to kill it. So they like to believe that God killed that first lamb and gave him clothes, but there's no recorded mention of that. They have to project that in. Or is it our sin killed Christ at the cross? He who knew no sin became sin for us. What do we actually have recorded that happened to Christ at the cross? In relation to the Father. What did the Father do to his Son? My God, my God, why are you killing me? Is that what it's recorded as saying? Why have you forsaken me? Why have you let me go? And we actually find, if you like the book Desire of Ages, in the, in the uh, chapter in Gethsemane, that Christ fell down dying in Gethsemane before crucifixion. And he would have died there, except an angel came to strengthen him. Why? Why would he have died there? Was the father killing him? What was happening in Gethsemane in relation to his relationship with the father? As a human being, where did his humanity derive its life? From God. He lived a life of faith. Now, he was always capable at any time of accessing his own divine prerogatives, which Satan tempted him to do constantly, even on the cross. Come down from the cross, we'll believe in you. Constantly, save yourself, save yourself. He was constantly tempted, but he didn't live a life by using his own divine prerogatives. All the miracles he did was through whose divinity? The same way the apostles, the same way um, uh, Elisha raised someone from the dead. The same way Elijah called down fire. The same way the apostles would heal the lepers. This is the same power, the power of the Father through faith. That's how Christ's humanity achieved this. And so I don't like this idea that he slayed an animal in the Garden of Eden for them. I do believe he provided garments for their comfort. Does that make sense? So still, how do we take, partake of this remedy? 
This is out of a Christian Education, page 119. It is a law of the mind that it will narrow or expand to the dimensions of the things with which it becomes familiar. It's a law. It's like the law of gravity. You don't have to like it. You don't have to believe in it. You can deny it, but go up to this building, step off, and say, I don't believe in you, gravity. Boom. What's going to happen? Still works, doesn't it? This is the law. You can say, that doesn't work in my life. I can watch all the cruddy stuff I want. I can listen to all the rotten music I want. My mind won't contract. My mind won't be damaged. It is a law. You can't avoid it. The mental powers will surely become contracted and will lose their ability to grasp the deep meaning of the word of God unless they are put vigorously and persistently to the task of searching for truth. The mind will enlarge if it is employed in tracing out the relation of the subjects of the Bible, comparing scripture with scripture and spiritual things with spiritual. And then this is Great Controversy 555. It is a law, both of the intellectual and spiritual nature, that by beholding we become changed. The mind gradually adapts itself to the subjects upon which it is allowed to dwell. It becomes assimilated to that which it is accustomed to love and reverence. Man will never rise higher than his standard of purity or goodness or truth. If self is the loftiest ideal, he will never attain to anything more exalted. Rather, he will constantly sink lower and lower. The grace of God alone has power to exalt man. Left to himself, his course must inevitably be downward. So what is? how do we partake? We understand the truth of our need. We understand the truth of God's goodness, that he is never out against us. God is always for us. We come back to see the truth is revealed in Christ, that we, we are one to trust. It says in, we're doing Romans, Romans chapter I think it's 2-4, the kindness of God leads us to repentance. It's when, we, when we see how kind he is, how patient, how good, we are convicted. Hey, wow, I don't deserve it, but boy, I sure trust him. He's awesome. And then in that trust, we begin to focus on him, study him, meditate upon him. Let our minds study, the, the, study out these deep things, and it, re, it results in growth, neural circuitry expansion of our prefrontal cortex. And let's put your, what you said together with this practicing. We endure. When we face conflicts and trials, the scriptures tells us, let's rejoice in our trials. Why do we rejoice, it says? There's a reason. Because trials bring opportunity for character development. When we are in face of trials and difficulties, we have a choice to make. Will we go with our inherent, reflexive, carnal nature desire to defend, fight back, and retaliate? Or will we fall on our knees and say, God, give me grace to love in the face of this? And when we make that choice, we begin to practice. And we've been practicing, hopefully, haven't we? Yes. And this is a time for our class to grow, to press together, to love others, to be patient, to present the truth, to not retaliate, to not speak evil, to to be kind in the face of, of misunderstanding and mistreatment. This is practicing. And this causes change in neural circuits. It actually results in a growth in the neural circuits of self-governance and restraint and altruism and love and a diminishment or activity of the, of the neural circuits of, of selfishness and, and, and resentment and retaliation. Of course, just because we restrain our behavior doesn't mean we can't do it in our heart. And, and neuroscience tells us, very fascinating, that... Um, Maybe I'll close with this little neuroscience today. Um, There are um, neurotrophic factors called brain-derived neurotrophic factor. And this particular neurotrophic factor causes neurons to stay healthy, to branch out, to connect. And you can learn faster when this is available. Uh, It doesn't come off the DNA as brain-derived neurotrophic factor, though. It comes off as a precursor protein called pro-brain-derived neurotrophic factor. Now, brain-derived neurotrophic factor is like fertilizer for your neurons. When it's there, it'll branch out, connect, make the neurons healthy. pro BDNF, brain-derived neurotrophic factor, is weed killer for your neurons. If it hits a a synapse, a dendrite, a neural circuit, it will kill that neural circuit. Now, that's how it comes off the DNA. What's what's critical is that you have an enzyme available that will cleave pro-BDNF into BDNF, and you will get the weed killer gone, and you'll have the fertilizer, and those things will grow stronger. What determines whether your neural circuits have BDNF or pro-BDNF, the fertilizer or the weed killer, 
is the electrical activity or the activity of the neural circuit itself. Neural circuits which are exercised and used will produce the enzyme which will cleave pro-BDNF into BDNF and it will grow stronger over time. Neural circuits which are left dormant and idle that we don't use, the enzyme is not produced, pro-BDNF will eventually prune back and, 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 and degrade that neural circuit. Now what's fascinating is we put people in scanners. And if you put somebody in a scanner and have them play an instrument, you can actually document in functional scanners which neural circuits are firing while they're paying, playing a particular piece of music. And then you take away the instrument and you tell them, play that piece of music in your imagination. You've got little electrodes called EMGs where you can actually monitor muscles to see if any muscles are firing. And no muscles are firing, so we're not actually moving fingers here. But we're just playing in their imagination, and guess what? Same neural circuits are firing. So what this means is, this is why we have to bring every thought into captivity to Jesus Christ. This is why Jesus said, you say if you commit a bad act, I say if you're doing it in your mind. If you are activating these unhealthy circuits in your imagination, you are still firing those circuits, you're still producing this enzyme, you're still cleaving the pro-BDNF into BDNF, you're still growing the unhealthy circuits. We can take a, 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 a pedophile and we can lock them up in prison. So they can't act out that behavior. But can we control the imagination? So if they spend 20 years in prison and imagine for 20 years all the sexual perversion that they're going to do, they're activating those still degraded circuits, and they'll grow stronger and stronger and stronger, and they will come out more pedophile than, when, than they went in. This is how we're made, and this is why we are to meditate on God's Word. We're to think about healthy and pure things. We're to watch what we feed upon. We are to control the imagination through God's grace, because there's actually a real life-changing process that happens. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you have brought your truth to us uh, in the form of Jesus Christ, God in human flesh. Lord, may our darkened minds be in light. May your spirit come. May your angels come. Hold back the forces that confuse us. As we study your word, may the Holy Spirit connect the dots together that the grand picture of your character, the controversy in the universe, the war which has raged for 6,000 years on this planet, and our role and place in time now may become clear. May we be cleansed from the distortions and the selfishness and the pettiness, and may our hearts be renewed to love you and to love others, and may we be empowered to speak these words clearly, to go out and be witnesses at this time in history, that the world may be lightened with your glory, that we can see you soon, we pray in your holy name. Amen.